You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. That's a good question. So kind of the question is, is what's the best way of, quote unquote, defending the faith, if you will? 1 Peter 3.15 is a verse that we've talked a lot in class about. It's kind of the, one of the core verses for this class. I think it is the class verse that I put on the website is, but in your hearts, set aside Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the faith that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior to Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So the question is, is what is the best way of defending the faith? So that's, that's a, a, a que- it sounds like that's the question you're asking. So what I've been teaching you guys in here, I don't think I've ever gone over this. So this is, we might call this approaches to defending your faith. Now the word defending is rather unfortunate because it has sort of a negative connotation in our culture, doesn't it? To be defensive. Yeah. We don't want to, it sounds a little judgy, right? So um, really what it's, it's going for is uh, in a legal sense, it's presenting evidence would be another way of saying it is what evidence should we put forth when we're talking about our faith? Now, most Christians, I think, would take the route that your friend is taking is, is you give them your testimony of this is what God has done in my life. This is how he's transformed me. We might call that transformation evidence. It's personal to each individual and we could go around the room and talk about what Jesus has done in your life and how that's shown up and and that type of evidence and there's a famous quote by um, St. Francis of Assisi uh, who was a medieval monk and he he said something to the effect of um, yeah talk about your faith and use words if necessary (laughs) the 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 idea of it is that you're you're presenting a, a life of love. So this is a type of evidence. Now some of the other types of evidence we've been talking about in the class is um, historical and philosophical. So there's many ways that you can make the case. make the And, and, and really the word picture in, in 1 Peter 3 is that of a courtroom. Because the, the world, the unbeliever, is always watching us to, to know what we're, what we're about and what we're doing. And so how many of you agree, like, some Christians can put forth some pretty bad evidence for the Christian faith? Like, people who name the name of Christ and do bad things. Like, that's not a good case, right? So there is something to your friend's idea that a life can be considered evidence. The question is, is is there room for other types of evidence as well? And what is the biblical precedent 
Like, what are the types of evidences that the apostles would use? Did they only use the evidence of a transformed life or a life of love? They certainly used those things, didn't they? But the question is, is did they only use those things? Or did they use other types of evidence as well? So um, I think it's useful to, for example, let's look in the book of Acts. Let's just peruse the book of Acts here for a few minutes. Let's start in Acts chapter 2. So the setting is on Pentecost, right? And Jesus or um, Peter stands up on Pentecost starting in verse 14 and he's addressing the crowd. And in the, the crowd, it says there in verse 14 is fellow Jews. And these are Jews that are in Jerusalem from all over the world. The resurrection of Jesus has just passed. There's about 50 days prior, okay? And let's notice Peter's sermon here. He says in verse 22, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by what? Miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge in you with the help of wicked men put to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to have a hold on him. Let's skip down to verse 32. It says, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all what? Witnesses to this fact. Okay, let's stop there for a minute. So what kinds of evidences are, is Peter putting forth in his sermon on Pentecost? He's saying, well, there were some historical events, right? There were miracles, wonders, and signs that you yourself saw. You were witnesses of these things. You were also witnesses of the resurrected Jesus after he came back to life. So is he only presenting a type of evidence that would be in this category of a transformed life or a life of love? Or is he presenting something more along some historical evidences? Okay, so this is really, we might argue, like one of the very first public gospel presentations after the Holy Spirit has come. He calls them to repentance in verse 38. Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for those who are far off, in other words, Gentiles, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Now, isn't it interesting that the, the focus of the gospel are historical events? It's the focus of the gospel is a recounting of the miracles, the signs and wonders, and the resurrection of Jesus. That's the gospel. And then that's the foundation on which he calls them into the possibility of a transformed life is because of these historical events. So what is the ground for receiving the Holy Spirit? What is the ground for getting baptized? It's believing that these historical events are true. So again, we, we come back to this, this issue that history and theology are all intertwined together. 
history provides the ground of our faith and it is the foundation on which we build certain theological ideas like salvation, eternal life, is built upon whether or not these things are historically true. So what types of evidence does Peter give? Well, he gives a lot of historical evidence. Let's look, for example, a little later in the book of Acts, Saul's conversion in chapter 9. Now, Saul's conversion is one where he basically meets the Lord Jesus Christ in a vision on his way to Damascus. This is what I call a supernatural interruption. You know, sometimes that happens in our lives. And there is a supernatural interruption that happens. And what happens to Saul after this? Well, he gets blind. Okay, so blindness we might say, is a physical, historical evidence. It's something that's happening in the physical world. It's like the signs and wonders of Jesus, right? But then what happens to Paul when he gets back, when he gets to Damascus, he gets a visit from Ananias, right? And Ananias, the Lord comes to Ananias and tells him to go find Saul and basically he prays over him for healing and then he gets baptized in the Holy Spirit and baptizes him with water. And what happens to Saul is, is what we might say a transformed life. Right? Was that a powerful evidence to the apostles later in the book of Acts? You remember poor old Barnabas was the only one who really believed that maybe Saul was different. Right. And so he took that risk in stepping out and accepting Paul among among the apostles. But that was the evidence of a transformed life. And and Paul's whole ministry was built on the idea of, hey, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was the chief, the persecutor in chief of the church. But I came out. I met the Lord Jesus Christ in a vision and I had a transformed life. Right. So. That is another type of evidence. And then we see throughout the book of Acts, there are several recountings where Paul gives his, what we call his testimony of meeting Jesus on that road. So it's another type of, of evidence. Now, let's look at a third line of evidence. Let's look at Acts chapter 17. Let's start in verse 10. Now, Paul is on a one of his missionary journeys. I believe it's his first one. He first goes to Thessalonica earlier in chapter 17. Let's actually start in verse 2 of chapter 17. It says, as his custom was, Paul went where? To the synagogue. And he was there three Sabbath days, in other words, three weeks. And he, what did he do? He, what does it say? He reasoned with them from the scriptures, examining and what? Proving that the Christ or the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. Okay, these words, reasoned and proving. Put a circle around those. What, is, what kind of evidence is Paul putting forward in the synagogue? Resurrection. Possibly. 
but a lot of philosophical evidence, right? The words reasoning and proving, that's more of a philosophical endeavor. And he's probably, though, you're right, Susanna, also including some historical evidence. But we don't read here that he says, let me stand up and give you my testimony of a transformed life. He goes into the Jewish synagogue for three weeks and he reasons with them and proves from the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah and that the Messiah had to suffer and die. He's making his case, if you will. And just in case we think that this is an anomaly, we'll skip forward to Berea. He sails to, or he goes on to Berea after this. It says in verse 11, now, um, or let's start in verse 10. As soon it was, as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, he went to where? To the synagogue again. So Paul is again going to, this is his custom, is the first place he goes in a city to bring the gospel, is he goes to the people that already have revelation. They already believe in God. They already have some revelation in the Old Testament. They have sensibilities of who God is. He doesn't have to argue the case for God existing. He's arguing the case that Jesus is God. Okay? So he goes to the synagogue and says, now the Bereans were of, I love this, were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. For they received the message with what? Great eagerness. And they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was what? True. Okay, so I want you to get the picture here. They're in the synagogue. They're hearing this, this rabbi come to town. And he's got this very unusual argument that the Messiah has come. The Messiah had to suffer and die. And let me prove it to you from the revelation that you already have. Okay. So then did, did the Bereans just passively sit there and take it in? No, they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. So what kinds he's using more of a historical and philosophical approach here. We don't, again, have a record of Paul standing up in the synagogue and say, let me tell you about the vision I had on the road to Damascus and my transformed life. That wasn't the type of evidence he was putting forward. Now, there are other... Prophecy from the scriptures? That would be my guess. It doesn't specifically tell us. Um, in Peter's sermons... Luke tends to include the prophecies and give us more details of what Peter's sermons were. They had only the... Yeah. Luke doesn't seem to include that, as much, that information as much in, in Paul's sermons. Now, when we flip the page and we go over to Athens. Now, let's see what Paul does. Now, when, when we're in Athens, it says that he, first in verse 17... And we're still in chapter 17. So he, what did he do? He reasoned again in the synagogue. It's a legal term. He went to court. He presented evidence in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks. In other words, these are, these are Gentiles who hadn't fully converted to Judaism because there was this whole circumcision problem that sounded sort of painful. But they, they revered the Jewish God, and so they would attend synagogue. Okay, that's who... God-fearing Greeks are, as well as in the marketplace day by day and those who happened there. All right. 
a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers came to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler saying? Other remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. Okay, so are these people Jewish people? These Epicurean philosophers? No, they're, they're, they're Greek philosophers. They're pagans. They're, they're Gentiles. They don't have the Old Testament. They're living in Athens, and they're engaged in the, the world of academia. Okay? That's the world that Paul has now stepped into. He's, so he's not in a churchy context. He's in a world marketplace context. Are you with me? Okay. So, um, he's, all right. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and what? The resurrection. Notice it doesn't say he was preaching the good news about Jesus and giving them his personal testimony. It was the resurrection. It was a historical event that he was giving them. All right. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. In other words, they said, this is very fascinating. We should have you talk to some more academic people. We're going to take you to the university. We're going to take you to where the university people gather and talk about philosophy. May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who live there spent time doing nothing but talking and listening to the latest ideas. These were professional philosophers who liked to sit around and talk about ideas. Okay? And Paul stood up at the meeting of the Areopagus, and he says, Great, I'm going to use this to preach a sermon. Men of Athens, I see in every way you are very religious. But notice that he never says that they believe in the Jewish God. For as I walked around and looked carefully at all your objects of worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. What you worship is something unknown. I am going to proclaim to you. So he finds a way to build a bridge between their culture and the truth of the gospel. All right. So this is, that's a philosophical move. He's saying religion is basically part of what it means to be a human. You worship all this stuff, and I'm going to now tell you about the one true God that you haven't yet heard of. And this is a more of a philosophical argument. Now, notice what he does here. Um, he talks about creation. It's right in with what we were talking about last week. Uh, verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven. And earth and does not live in temples built by hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else from one man. He made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. Well, now he's, he's making some kind of historical argument for the first humans. And he's saying, I'm going to tell you a, a, basically a creation narrative for what, where the first humans were and that there was a creator and this is the whole story. And, and so he's, he's presenting this historical case. All right. Now, I want you to drop down to verse 31. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice 
by the man he appointed, he has given what? Proof of this to all men by what? Raising him from the dead. So what type of evidence is he giving here? Historical. Historical. When, you, when it talked about uh, proof that he was raised from the dead, yes. what do you surmise they understood from that? So I think that's a fair question. The best insight I, I would glean from that is when Paul explains that in 1 Corinthians 15, in the first five or six verses there, he really breaks that down as to how he preaches that. And it's that uh, Jesus was uh, lived and died and was resurrected, and then he appeared to the apostles and he appeared to 500 people. That there was this case of eyewitnesses. And this seems to be the, the very foundation of the gospel itself, is, is the eyewitness testimony. So that would be my best guess as to what Paul was doing there. Is he kind of expands it more in 1 Corinthians 15, gives us more of the details. Luke doesn't preserve that for us in the book of Acts. That's just a speculation because um, it's from the same author of Paul. But I think that we have to be careful as Christians when we're making our case. If we only give the transformed life, I can give you a transformed life story about almost anything. I mean, if you've ever watched an infomercial, there's transformed lives. I mean, you can get a transformed life story out of a 12-step program or about some really great soap or a religious perspective. But, the, but what we spent all last year doing was trying to make the case that the reason we're arguing for transformed lives is because we believe the philosophical and historical case for the historic Christian faith is the most accurate explanation for these things. And that a life that is infused with the power of the Holy Spirit is something unique and special. Okay, so do you notice how there's many, there's many ways to make the case for Christianity? Now, I could go through the entire epistles and do this more, but I just am using Acts as sort of a case study. You can see in some real-life scenarios how the apostles did this. But to me, it's pretty clear that the apostles argued for defending their faith. The kinds of evidence that they presented was all of these. And so I, this is what I've been advocating in this class. Sometimes we spend time talking about historical evidences. Sometimes we talk about philosophical evidences. Sometimes we talk about the importance of loving people at the margins of our culture. Sometimes we talk about a transformed life, right? So this is the approach I've been using in class, and, and I just laid out for my case for why I do it that way uh, from the book of Acts. Now, the reason I don't argue only from a transformed life is, so if you talk to your friendly neighborhood LDS person, what are they going to tell you? Let me tell you my testimony. testimony, right? So how do they make their case for the truth of their religion? Is transformation. transformation. Let me tell you my story. Now, I could tell that to a Muslim convert. I could get that from, and see, it goes both directions. I'm like, well, okay, I have some problems with the Book of Mormon narrative because, because I can't find any archaeological support 
for these events that are in the Book of Mormon. Now, I can go in the Bible and I can go find places like the Jordan River and Jerusalem and Bethany and, and I can go visit the home of Peter and I can, I can go to all of these places that are mentioned in the Bible, but I can't find Bountiful. I can't find these places that are mentioned in the Book of Mormon, the rivers, the cities. I can't find evidence of their coins, of their culture, of their burial systems, of their, of their temple systems. But I can find all that evidence from the biblical descriptions. Do you see the problem? But these are more historical arguments. Okay, so let's try on that idea. Let's say Jesus came to America and after his resurrection... And he preached the gospel to the Native Americans. That's the general story of the Book of Mormon. Okay, let's, let's just try that on for a minute. Now, from a historical point of view, I would look for certain confirming evidences for that. I would look for evidences of those cultures, those wars. I would look for inscriptions of famous names. I would look for coins. I would look for evidences of cities. I, I would look for evidences of cities. I would look for evidences of temples. I would look for, do, do you see what I'm saying? So we could try on that narrative, but the question is, is where is that evidence for those descriptions? Now, when I look at it from, from a, a biblical point of view, the reason I believe that the Bible can make the case for a transformed life is because when I look at the case for the historical accuracy of the Bible, it's very strong. I can find evidence of cities and coins and burial rituals and, and all of these things are consistent with the scripture's descriptions. I can find inscriptions with names like Pilate that match what's in the Bible. So I have what we call corroborating extra biblical evidence. I don't have that for the, exactly. I, but I don't have that for the Book of Mormon. So because I don't have that for the Book of Mormon, this is, goes back to our conversation last week. History stands at the foundation of the theology. I don't have a reason to believe that the, the LDS narrative of, of the afterlife is accurate because I don't find that the historical claims of the Book of Mormon are accurate. I would entertain the possibility that the LDS narrative of the afterlife is true if you could show me from history that the Book of Mormon accounts of history are, are accurate. But you can't do that. I can't go to an archaeological site for Bountiful. There's no place I can go. I can't find those rivers. I can't find those countries. I can't find those civilizations. I can't find those people. I can't find those coins. I can't find those evidences of those burial practices. I cannot find those things.